Many of you probably have been to a buffet and know how you have to delicately approach a buffet. Uh, it's not a place for madmen. Uh, it's certainly not a place for children. Uh, if I were to take my children to a buffet and see them go for the pop at the fountain, I would think of strangling them uh, because you know that's how they fill you up and then they don't eat and you end up uh, paying an exorbitant amount of money uh, and ruining the whole event. And, you know, most of us have probably also suffered at the hands of many a buffet. And uh, I'm still not convinced that most people have the uh, moral fortitude to endure a buffet. And that is your message for today, um, in case you were uh, thinking of ever doing something as uh, pernicious and evil as a buffet. But when you read chapter 14, uh, what you actually have feels to me like a massive buffet of truth, of doctrine. And I read it, and I prepared it, and I thought, wow, how am I going to get through this? It is one heavy doctrine after another, after another, after another. And while I don't want to ruin the general flow of the book of Revelation that we've been going through, you will find that there are things in the passages that we've looked at today that could take uh, a sermon on their own, one passage, and appropriately so. Now, what you see before you is a sort of transition, and the transition emerges in the form of a victory song. The Lamb is standing on Mount Zion, and with the Lamb are the 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. Now, what you will find in Scripture and generally in society is that after a great victory, one of the common things we do is a, a victory song or a victory dance of some sort. Uh, you see this in Exodus 15. You see it in Psalm 18 that we read earlier. Uh, we see it at sports games and so on. Uh, when the team wins, the crowd breaks out in song. Mind you, not in the boring uh, cathedral of BC Place, but in the UK and Turkey and other places where the people are a little more lively, you hear the music, you hear the singing and the victory. Uh, actually, my oldest son challenged me this uh, past spring break to one-on-one -on -one basketball. Uh, he's 14. Uh, I am not. I am the opposite of those numbers. And uh, he was talking a lot of smack on the way down to the court by our house. And uh, I thought, well, I'm not going to go easy on this little brat. And we played, and I won't tell you all the details, but the three that I sunk at the end to win was a thing of beauty. I, he stormed off, and then I had to tell my wife. And, you know, as a good mother, she says, you could have let him win. Well, if my phone could have felt any more pressure from my thumbs texting her back on how upset I was with her recommendation, 
uh, it would not exist anymore. And she says, well, did you uh, celebrate too much? You're not a very good winner, Mark. You're actually the worst winner that I know. And I says, no, I think I was fine. And then I actually remembered after I stopped texting her, I did actually take my T-shirt off after I won and swung it around my head like this in victory. And he hoofed the basketball so high up into the bushes that it was still fun getting it, knowing that I was the victor. Now, the point is, there's something about victory that makes us want to celebrate, that makes us want to burst forth in praise. And for the Christian, this is eminently so, because it is an eternal celebration of victory. And so you look at the language that's described in verse 2. I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters. This is no quiet, still voice of God whispering into one's ear on a walk along the beach. This is a thunderous voice. And it says so, like the sound of thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And that's actually, incidentally, where I think we get this idea that uh, we're going to be Uh, playing a harp in heaven. Now, uh, thankfully, I think we're going to be doing a lot more than simply playing a harp, but I had never been much inclined to want to go to heaven as a youngster because I was not, uh, as you might say, renowned for my harpist ability. Uh, But there you go. Uh, There are people who are uh, making a sound like thunder, like the sound of harpists playing their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. Now, the question is, who's doing the singing? And the answer, I think, is the redeemed who are in heaven. And you might say, well, it says 144,000. Now, of course, if you look at the book of Revelation, numbers are used symbolically. And the 144,000 speaks of the completeness of the redeemed people who are there. There is nobody missing who should be there. The 144,000 is symbolic of the redeemed people of God, and they are praising God, and they are praising the Lamb. And you will notice they have, in verse 1, the Lamb's name and God's name, the Father's name, written on their foreheads. Now, we saw this earlier in chapter 7 that the servants of God have His name on their foreheads. And then in chapter 22, verse 4, they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. What this suggests to us is not that we have a literal tattoo of God's name and the Lamb's name on our foreheads, but that we are identified by God in a way by which His name is upon us. Now, this is most obviously manifested in this present world by the fact that when we baptize someone, we are naming them. It is a naming ceremony. I baptize you in the name, singular name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you bear that name, and you are to live up to that name, and you are to live your life in light of that name. And everything that is important about you ultimately is summed up in that name, God's name is upon you. And you are to live up to that name. You are to respond to that name, embrace that name, love that name. Now what that means actually is that for every single person sitting in this room right now, you have a name that God knows on your forehead or on your right hand. 
because we're told earlier in chapter 13 that the beast's name is upon the forehead of those who worship him or on their right hand, and also in this chapter. So it doesn't matter who you are. You have a name upon you right now that God can see a name of allegiance, a name of trust, a name of worship, and that name is either God's name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or it is the name of the beast. And there's no middle ground. There's no, well, I'm waiting to see how things unfold. You have a name that has been placed upon you. And you are someone who either belongs to God or you belong to the beast. Now notice the identity then of those who have God's name in verses 4 and 5. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Well, there you go. Imagine not having any real ability to interpret the Bible and getting a gospel tract uh, with just verse 4. Who will go to heaven? And you open up the gospel tract, and only virgins go to heaven. And there's fear and panic and pandemonium, because that would obviously be a very small minority of people. Is that what the text is saying? Obviously not. If you actually look at the context as it unfolds, What we are speaking about here are the morally compromised who worship the beast versus those who have been forgiven by the blood of the Lamb and live in fear and worship of the triune living God. And only those who live according to God's ways and God's law and God's rules are those who can be described as these virgins, those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes those who've been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And look at the context in verse 5 even. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. And what you'll find actually in the Scriptures is very often not sinlessness describing the people of God, but blamelessness. So that Zechariah and Elizabeth, blameless. That there's sometimes people who are called uh, good and a God-fearing people. Now, these people are blameless, and they follow the Lamb, and they are virgins. They are those who are spiritually pure. But, as we see in the context, and why I think this is not to be taken in an overly literal way, three angels come onto the scene, and these angels issue warnings to those who do side with the beast and with the dragon. Now, notice the first angel. He says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now this angel is basically coming to earth dwellers. And earth dwellers in the book of Revelation are not the godly, but the godless. And so this holds out hope to those who live on earth, even now, who have the mark of the beast, that there is hope, there is a gospel. 
And this gospel is to be proclaimed to every tribe, every language, every nation. Have you ever thought what it would be like to go back in time 200 years, but, you know, know what you know now and see what things are like? Or maybe to go forward 200 years? And which would be more scary? Well, I think going forward would be far more scary, to be honest. Uh, At least going back, I could do some reading, know what to expect, and sneak some toilet paper in my pocket to go with me, and otherwise be pretty good, a toothbrush, and here we go. But if I were to go forward 200 years or 300 years or 3,000 years, what's so remarkable about the gospel is that it's eternal and that I could actually have something to say to people a thousand years from now that wouldn't fundamentally change from the message I say today. And that's the glory of the gospel. It meets the need of every person, every tribe, every nation at any time because our fundamental problems do not change. We are sinners. We have offended God. And God alone can offer us what we truly need. A free, eternal gospel. And He offers us something of such infinite value that no one can afford to pay it. So it has to be freely given. Otherwise, we would all be without hope and without God. And notice what we are to do then in light of the eternal gospel. We're to fear God and give Him glory. Because judgment has come. And we're to worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now I think if you just look at that last few words of that verse, that's one powerful way in which we're to command all men everywhere to repent. Notice, worship the Creator who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. The springs of water is what gives you life. The springs of water what enables you to live. But God has springs of living water an eternal gospel, and you're to fear Him. And I believe that this is not the fear of dread, but actually the fear of reverence, the type of fear that even our Lord had, where we read in Hebrews that He prayed to God and He was heard because of His fear, His reverence. It's the same word. Give Him glory. How do you give God glory? You fear Him. You reverence Him. And when you reverence Him, you worship Him. And when you worship Him, you glorify Him. And that ultimately is your chief end, to worship God. I was at a soccer game yesterday in the morning. went to go see some kids who I'd coached and saw some adults who I was friend with and I was just a fan on the side. And a young man actually uh, was taking a course who I had coached previously. And it was interesting because we started talking and then he said, oh, I... I hear that you are actually an author. And uh, I says, yeah. He says, well, I'd like to buy a book. And I says, no, no, you don't buy a book. I'll give you a book. He's like, no, I wasn't trying to get a free book. And I says, I'll give you a book. God is. And we just started talking about the book, and he was just so shocked that I was an author. I says, I get that all the time. (laughs) I'm still shocked. (laughs) You know? Really need to start giving my wife credit for all of these books she's written for me. But I digress. (laughs) I said to him, you see, this book might be helpful. It's a good book. Uh, But you see this game going on right now? This game is what going to church is. 
You can read the book, and that's like going to practice or going for a run. Enjoy the book. But you need to get onto that field. You need to get to church and worship God because that's ultimately what matters. These are just mere helps. Your Bible study, your book, all of these things are mere helps. But what you need to do is worship God. And praise God he was there with his mom and dad this morning. Because that's what matters. Read the book. But worship God. Worship God. And this is a message to earth dwellers, to pagans, to godless, to those without hope. It's a message we need to be zealous to try and bring to anyone and everyone. No matter where you are, you have no excuse. Get to church, worship God. And there's another angel, a second angel, who follows saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, this is a bit surprising because Babylon hasn't yet been mentioned. There's a bit of foreshadowing going on what will happen in the rest of the book of Revelation. But Babylon is basically a code word for a pagan power that was oppressing the people of God at that time. And what's interesting is that Babylon is identified and ultimately falls because of what? Her seduction of the nations. They are drunk on sexual immorality. Now, there's something most interesting that you all need to listen very carefully to. When a civilization or a city or a nation or whatever it may be falls, very often it falls because of rampant sexual immorality. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah is the obvious one, but you can actually look at Rome falling and look at the rampant sexual immorality that was going on in the temple cult prostitution. You look at civilization right now, Western civilization, where sexual immorality, and what I mean by that is not just people sleeping with each other who shouldn't be sleeping with each other. I'm talking about every aspect of our sexual identity is so perverted now in the eyes of the world that we're going to fall because we can't even tell you what a man is and what a woman is anymore. We can't do it. People don't want to do it. Because once you say someone is something according to God's norms and standards, you are putting yourself in God's box that He has declared to be true, and therefore you have to say other things are false. And nobody wants to say other things are false. Do you think 25 years ago, we could have asked someone what a woman is? And they would say, listen, I have no way of knowing that anymore. Do you think 25 years ago that would have happened? Never. Now that's actually just considered, well, that's a good question, you know. We must talk to the biologists. We must not talk to the biologists, we must talk to the psychologists as well. Then we must talk to the philosophers. And we can get all the philosophers together, the psychologists together, the biologists together, throw a few physicists in there, throw a urologist in there. They should know for sure. And they would come back saying, you know what, we need more time to think about this. This is a complex question. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The fall of Western civilization is probably best exemplified in 
the erosion of biblical sexual norms that we have taken for granted for hundreds of years that we can no longer take for granted. Now, if you think that's bad, there's something even more terrifying, and it's the third angel in verses 9 to 11. Because this angel says with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, because everyone here has a mark, whether God's mark or the beast's, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now, my friends, you cannot read those passages for your daily Bible reading and close your book and say a nice little prayer and get on with your day. You can't do it. Do you see what you just read? It's horrifying. It's horrifying to anyone who actually knows somebody that they love who doesn't actually serve Christ. That's how horrifying it is. That may be a parent of yours. It may be a child of yours, a cousin, a best friend, whoever it may be. You may know someone where this passage is describing their eternal destiny as things stand at this point in time. I was uh, saying to someone in the car yesterday, I think it was Barb, that we've lost our way with the English language, that we not only have terrible vocabulary, thankfully Wordle is sorting that all out for us, but you know, we've lost our way with language. We don't know how to use words appropriately anymore, and hyperbole has never been worse. And she says, well, I think we've always used hyperbole. I says, yeah, but now it's terrible. We, We don't know how to use language. And now we overstate things so often that we can't actually emphasize things. That's why swear words basically work. You want to really say you mean it, you just throw a swear word in there, right? It's the loss of the English language. People don't have the words to be able to communicate, so they have to swear. I didn't plan to talk about swearing, but I think if you swear, you're stupid. You're an ignoramus because you don't actually have any language abilities. You should read a book. And then learn how to really insult people. (laughs) So they don't even know they're being insulted. That's the best. Anyway. But I will say this without wishing to be overly hyperbolic. This is one of the scariest passages you can read. Because if you think about it, It's interesting the way people's eyes connect with us. We see someone's eyes, and you can look at 400 people, but isn't it amazing how when you lock eyes with someone, you know that you've locked eyes? And my point is this. Every set of eyes is going to look into eternity. Every set of eyes is also going to look at the Lamb. And you know, people used to say when we were a bit more ignorant about what hell was that really hell is just separation from God, and that is manifestly false. But then some would say, well, separation from God is not correct. What hell is, is it's being in the presence of God but without a mediator. Now, that is also actually false. 
Because what we are told here is that those who are tormented forever and ever are in the presence of the Lamb. That is Jesus Christ. Verse 10 at the end there. You see that? They are in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That is to say then some important things about how we view our Savior. If your Savior can only stand in heaven but not in hell, He is not a Savior from sin. He is a Savior of your own imagination. Our Savior is a divine warrior just as He is meek and mild and humble, gentle and lonely. He is those things. But He is also a divine warrior. He is also a divine conqueror. He is also one who will stand in the presence of the wicked and judge them forever and ever. And look at the way in which it is described. That the godless person will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Now, wine actually symbolizes God's wrath in two basic ways in the Scriptures. The first is this, that grapes are crushed and then the red wine flows from the wine press, the treading down. And so the, the blood of God's enemies is God treading down upon the grapes, and that is His wrath. But there's a second way in which wine illustrates God's wrath, and it's when wine is fermenting, the process of the grapes being crushed and then the wine ferments, And then the confused stupor comes over those who are drunk off too much wine. And that seems to be what is going on here. They will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of His anger. People will be in a state of stupor. That they'll be walking around, but like drunk persons, they don't really know what's going on and they've lost sight of reality. And they will be tormented. And the smoke, verse 11, of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. What makes suffering in this world suffering? Well, there's a number of factors, but one of the main aspects of what makes suffering suffering is when you don't know when it's going to end. That's what makes things unbearable at times. When will this end? If someone said, Mark, you're going to be sick, it's going to be really bad from Monday to Wednesday, but definitely by Wednesday at 1 p.m., you're going to feel like a million dollars again. Can you imagine what that would do to my suffering in the times of sickness, knowing that, hey, by Wednesday, 1 p.m., I'm going to be just fine? It would take away a large degree of the suffering. So in our lives, if we think about difficult periods in our lives, what's probably made them so difficult is that we didn't know when it was going to end. We had no sort of point where we could say, it will be fine by tomorrow. It will be fine by next week. For those who've suffered maybe for many years, what's made it so hard is that it just keeps going and going and going, and you start to have despair, and you wonder, when will this end? But what will make eternal suffering so unbearable is that you will know there can be no end. There can be no light at the end of the tunnel. There can be no relinquishing 
of the wrath of the Lamb. And so, in a manner of speaking, it will get worse and worse. You will not get used to it. That's sometimes one of the mercies that we have even in our suffering is that we just learn to deal with it. But not so in eternity. But that's also to say that there is a flip side to that. What makes our enjoyments in this world not quite totally enjoyable? You know, you go away on holiday, you go to Hawaii, then you realize, I've got to go back to Vancouver. I've got to go back to school. Oh, the depression tomorrow morning when I wake up to take my kids to school. You've got to go back, and you've got to do your work. You had your period of fun and enjoyment. I woke up this morning, and uh, uh, last night my wife, she gave me some drugs. They were just like magnesium and some other like vitamin. She says, this is why I've been sleeping so well. So finally I took two. They're natural stuff, nothing. Don't get all crazy that your pastor's on drugs. They're just basics. And I woke up and I was like, whoa, that was a good sleep. And then I had a cup of coffee and it was a really good cup of coffee. And I said to Barb in the kitchen this morning, I said, I'm having a fantastic day. And she made an egg for me and I put it on toast. And I didn't even care that it was a bit of gluten. I'm prepared to suffer later, but I was enjoying this egg on toast. I said, today is my day. But you know what I also thought? And I said this to her. I said, you know, this could go sideways at any point during this day. I mean, by 12 o'clock, I could have complaints. I could say, Mark, you're preaching too long, or I didn't agree with that, or I'd like to have a meeting with you, Mark, to discuss some things. And then my day would be ruined. Happened last week. I thought, oh, yeah, Mark, well done. Nope. The point is that our enjoyments in this world are sort of mitigated by the fact that we know it can't always be that good, that there will come a time when it ends or when we enter into a realm of darkness or suffering or a frowning providence and so on. But the glory of heaven is that we will also know that it cannot end, that it won't end, and that our enjoyment can only increase because we will be over and over assured of the fact that there is not going to be any lessening of our happiness, but only an increasing, all because of a very simple reality. And I want to close with that because we aren't going to get through all of this text, but I want to close with this. Jesus drank the cup of wrath that you read of in verse 10. He will also, speaking of the godless person who ultimately is judged and spends eternity suffering in outer darkness where their worm never dies and where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And Christ came into the world and said, I will drink that cup. I will drink it to the dregs. I will swallow it and there won't be a drop left. I will consume it all so that my people do not have to drink it. And not only that my people do not have to drink it, but instead of drinking the cup of God's wrath, they are going to drink the cup of God's blessing. And so what we get to drink is the cup of blessing. What we get to drink is salvation and not judgment. What we get to drink is the very opposite of everything that Christ 
drank all those years ago so that you freely can go with your brother in Christ, your sister in Christ, to the same destiny based upon a free offer of mercy. And that's all you have to do is receive His name. Receive His name and bear His name and love His name and you will endure to the end. Let's pray. O Lord, we thank You for harsh realities. Let us not live in a pretend universe where we make up what suits us and discard what does not. Let us be confronted as we need to be with the warnings as well as the promises of your word. And let us be found to be those who are marked by the name of the Father and by the name of the Son. And may those names be sealed by the power of the Spirit so that no other name can be placed upon us except the name of God. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.